If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. And we're two political reporters here in D.C. who are going to do something radically different. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping up with the voters who will determine this fall's election in November. Today, we're looking at a race for a Texas seat in the U.S. Senate. Texas is America on steroids. We're an ambitious, aspirational people. That's Republican incumbent Ted Cruz and Democrat insurgent Beto O'Rourke. Their fight reveals the differences between both campaigns and the conservative state. Beto is running on personality. Cruz is running on ideology. That's Bud Kennedy, Dean of the Delegation of Texas Reporters and Chief Political Reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Bud and I are both in Texas this week, gearing up for the home stretch before that big race. Then our own Adam Walner is back to update us on the Influencer Series and the issues of giving individuals who are convicted of felonies the right to vote in Florida. We actually have one of those influencers on the show today to walk us through the politics of that ballot measure. Marlon Hill is a Florida attorney and regular contributor to the series, helping us keep an eye on the issues that voters are talking about in Florida, even if they haven't bubbled up, pardon the pun, here in D.C. All right. You ready, Andrea? Let's do it. So, you know, we're less than one month before Election Day, and it's really our last opportunity, I think, to check in on what is one of the most compelling races in the country. Of course, I'm talking about the Texas Senate race. And we want to take a look in particular at why Beto O'Rourke is able to have some of the success that he's had running a different kind of campaign. Of course, Beto still has a long way to go. That's what we're going to get into with Bud and Andrea. Bud, thanks so much for being on the show. Good morning and thank you. It's been a really uh, exciting October down here for a change. Yeah, you guys aren't used to that necessarily, right? A competitive statewide election here in October. All the political actions always in March around the primary when the various factions of Republicans fight each other. We're not used to having anything like this in the fall. Usually in the fall, all we're talking about is Longhorns and Aggies and Cowboys. <laughs> you still have something to talk about with the Longhorns after their victory over Oklahoma this past week. Uh, things may be looking up for that football program for the first time in a little bit. But my first question here is for both Andrea and Bud. Uh, and I want to hear what both of you make of this. Andrea, of course, on the ground in Texas right now. You know, some of the polls show that Ted Cruz's lead over Beto O'Rourke is growing. Tonight, the question for Beto O'Rourke, can he turn big crowds into a victory against Republican Ted Cruz? Are you with me? And certainly we see here in Washington, if we're looking at the whole Senate map, there seems to be some momentum for Republican candidates in many red states after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings that the Republicans say really energized the Republican base and maybe even pulled some old Republican voters back to the party who are thinking of voting Democrat. That's my question to you, Bud. We'll start with you. Is there a sense that this race, uh, while still competitive, is slipping away from Beto O'Rourke? It's always been a mid to high single digit race. I think it's now a high single digit race. I think what happened with the Kavanaugh hearings was that the Republicans in Texas hate Democrats again now. They were wondering about Beto O'Rourke. He seemed like a different kind of candidate. But now they are back to staunchly hating Democrats. And the Republicans are 50 percent of Texas any day in the midterms where more Republicans and Democrats turn out to vote. The Republicans have a tremendous advantage. They usually win by uh, from 10 to 20 points. So the Republicans have remember now that they hate Democrats and why they hate Democrats and they're motivated to vote. But, but let me let me just keep on this question 
real quick, I mean, do you sense that there has been a change since the Kavanaugh confirmation fight? Yes. I mean, I think the race was a, a three or four point race. Now I think it's a seven or eight point race. It might slide back. You know, the, what's happened here, and I know we're going to talk about ads, but there has been no attack ad against Ted Cruz at all. And you, some attack ads down the stretch might narrow the gap again. But right now, Ted Cruz is, is marshalling all the Republicans who were pretty tepid. You know, the, the Trump Republicans weren't sure they trusted Cruz. There obviously is not this personal affinity for Cruz. And so a lot of people just weren't going to vote. But now they're pretty well set that they will vote. You know, I'm down in San Antonio this week in um, Republican Will Hurd's district, which is the only true swing district in Texas, and where Republicans put out a poll this week that showed him up something like 25 points over his Democratic challenger. It's a majority-minority district. If Will Hurd is winning by 25 points, that's really hard for Beto O'Rourke. I want to read you something a national Democratic strategist from Texas said about that dynamic. He said, the candidate at the top of the ticket happens to be the second coming for Democrats nationally, but is not campaigning against Hurd. The fact that he isn't doing everything he can to pull down ballot Democrats across the finish line is disconcerting. Republicans will not return the favor. But also, if that district is running away from Democrats, it sort of speaks to what you see statewide, which is not the demography is destiny argument in this race, but that cities are the hub of, of where you see Democratic enthusiasm right now. And, and, and I know Democrats nationally have concerns, particularly about the rural Latino vote. And it's not just the Latino vote broadly necessarily, but particularly in rural areas. And that's what the, the 23rd District of Texas is, uh, of course, as it stretches um, from San Antonio almost all the, all the way to El Paso. So, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Bud, to, to talk about the Texas Renaissance, I know it's a race that gets a lot of hype. Um, and then maybe in some ways, nationally at least, there's a little too much focus on it. But there are so many compelling elements of this race. And one that we wanted to talk to you about, how Beto's campaign is just different. It's just different how he's how he's running it. And, and I think some proponents of it would say maybe that it's it's more modern. In, in a lot of ways. But why don't you explain that to us? Well, he, he's running a type of campaign for, a, a, obviously, a, a Democrat trying to appeal to crossover voters in Texas. He's really trying to run this uh, non-political campaign. He's saying, you know, it's not about being Democratic or Republican. It's about, you know, doing what's right for Texas. And even to the point of he, he says he's not taking PAC money. Uh, he's not running attack ads, although there is an outside group that will start running attack ads. Uh, you know, he says that he's not going to just flail away at Ted Cruz, that he's trying to present something better. And even in their debate in Dallas, it was as if Ted Cruz was debating uh, Beto O'Rourke and Beto O'Rourke was in, just coming out saying, there's a better way, everybody. We don't have to do it this way. It's almost like he's part of the audience criticizing politics and not in the campaign. Speaking of the audience... BTV listeners should also tune into Ground Game, Texas. It's a new real-time documentary on Facebook Watch from McClatchy Studios. Our own Bud Kennedy is a frequent guest on the show. I think the question for a long time has been whether Beto's rally turnout is fans or voters. If he keeps being suit and tie Beto, some of his fans are going to lose interest. The question in the second debate is, can he get back a little of his personality? You can watch the episode, Just Beto, Just Ted, on Facebook Watch right now, or on our website, startelegram.com. Don't forget to like and follow the page at facebook.com slash groundgametexas. 
Andrea, you know, you know, are there are there any Democrats in Texas who who think though that this has been a mistake? Are there any Democrats there who are critiquing Beto's campaign for maybe some of its shortcomings? Plenty of Democrats critiquing Beto O'Rourke's campaign for perhaps maybe the ad strategy and other aspects of that campaign. You know, things that he's able to do that maybe a local candidate are not. But you and I both watch the national groups um, who would have to be the ones to come in and do that. And on the right, you've got several groups that are in Texas attacking Better Work as well as the Cruz campaign. Whether or not national groups come into this race, I mean, I don't think it's totally off the table, but if it's a high single digit race and there are other priorities in the next couple of weeks, that seems less likely. But I don't think you're going to see him go back on that promise to uh, not run negative ads in Texas. You you, you think they'll stick with that promise throughout the campaign. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, has there been any movement uh, on, on this idea that the DSEC or Senate Majority PAC or other groups could come in and start buying TV ads here at the at the end of the race? You've written about how some liberal groups have, have kind of crept up to, to participating in the race and maybe offered a little minimal support here and there, but none of the, the most well-funded groups, none of the main party groups. Do you think that that changes? The most likely one, it seems like, would be the End Citizens United, the anti-money and politics group, uh, which is not committed. But I think it would be, again, at the very end and only if this race seems very close. So, but Democratic candidates across the country have been raising just incredible amounts of money. And, <laughs> and I want to put you on the spot here. You know, no, no campaign is raising more money than Beto O'Rourke, so I think we know that. How much money do you think he is going to report raising in, in the third quarter? I don't even have a dollar figure, but I think the big question is, how is he spending it? Where is it going since it's not going for a lot of attack ads and it's not going for a lot of TV time in general? He doesn't have much TV time booked down the stretch in the major markets. Uh, It seems to all be going on uh, ground, get out the vote, Uh, ground game, I guess we'd say, but it all seems to be going to uh, door to door workers. He has to turn out 500,000 people who don't normally vote in order to have a chance of catching up to the usual Republican midterm turnout. But the question is, where's all this money going? Uh, some of the people who gave him money aren't seeing uh, the results at this point. Well, that, that, that's I mean, but is that a is that a smart strategy to, to try to invest in this massive ground game? I, Texas is just an enormous place. So many people, such a large area. I'm wondering a little bit why you wouldn't funnel that that money. It doesn't have to all just be old school broadcast TV buys, right? There's plenty of digital advertising you can do. There are a lot of things you can spend that money on. Do you think the criticism is fair about where he's spending his money? There is a lot of social media, but you know, I, I think from the very beginning, it's been built on this premise that the, there are plenty of Democrats in Texas, they just don't vote. When you're counting on people who don't vote, you're starting off in trouble. <laughs> That's a good maxim, I think, in, in politics. A lot of people talk about Beto. Let, let's switch to Ted Cruz, if we can here. How is he personally handling this? I mean, he is not the, the star in this race. He is challenged, and he is bearing down. Uh, I think the goal for the Republicans in Texas is to work as hard as they can and run as hard as they can all the way through November 6. Basically, you know, the reason is they don't know what other surprises are coming. Uh, we saw things happen in the last couple of weeks in the presidential race that turned it upside down a couple of times. The Republicans in Texas, and Ted Cruz in particular, are intensifying everything they do, including attack ads, campaign appearances. Uh, he's actually discussing doing editorial boards, which Republicans in Texas don't usually need to do. You know, one media interview after another, 
Uh, Ted Cruz is sweating, and, and he is out there uh, just trying to to turn the the dirt in Texas to turn out every Republican he can find. If he finds all the Republicans and gets them out to vote, he wins. Remember that the, the Senate map is mostly Democratic incumbents. The Kavanaugh confirmation has forced Ted Cruz to cancel some events in Texas in October and caused him to stay in D.C., which, you know, for the rest of the Senate map, it's, it's mostly Democratic incumbents that have had to take time off the trail. But he's one of the two Republicans that have had to spend most of their time in Washington this month. I don't think Mitch McConnell minds making Ted Cruz's life just a little bit more difficult. Um, if he were being honest <laughs> with, with himself and, and with everyone else. Andrea, how, how severe are the eye rolls when uh, the Cruz people are asked about Beto's campaign and how it's sophisticated and modern and different? I was at an event that uh, Senator Cruz spoke at in Austin where he talked about the media cost him the presidential primary, the media cost him, the media's obsession with Beto work was causing this race to be in play, uh, and also that we were foaming at the mouth reporters in the back of the room. Um, the eye rolls are pretty big. So what, what is the, the Cruz message? We know Beto is trying to present himself. He's trying to stay on a positive message that he is going to bring change to Washington. He represents a new kind of politics, et cetera, et cetera. What is the Cruz message? Because he has not been afraid to go negative on Beto O'Rourke. Again, at that same event in Austin, talked a lot about the fact that things that he has talked about in past races, the debt ceiling, curbing government spending are not motivating to the base at all anymore. The only thing that motivates the base is Donald Trump, who is supposed to come to Texas for him. Donald Trump Jr. was here with Ted Cruz earlier this month. But the issues that he would like to talk about and has talked about in the past just aren't the thing that moved the needle with the the Republicans that he's trying to get out this time around. Yeah, I mean, it's not really personal. There's not a lot of the happy ads of of Cruz with his family or Cruz out hunting in the field or anything like that. It's about being conservative and and, uh, sticking it to the Democrats. And that's his his main message is you like President Trump, you like the conservative government you've got, keep conservatives in the Senate. And so it's it's not about uh, personality, it's about ideology. Beto's campaign and the the, uh, the group, the, the, the kind of group that has this fantastic following for him, or fantasy following, I should say, is wrapped up in personality. Cruz's campaign is about ideology. It's about, it's not about supporting Ted Cruz, it's about being conservative. And they're telling everybody up and down the Republican ticket, be conservative, vote a straight ticket Republican. But, you know, we're, we're less than a month from Election Day. We talked at the top at how the polls seem to be trending in Cruz's direction. Are there any Democrats who are still realistically holding out hope that Beto can pull this off? Conversely, are there any Republicans who are still quietly nervous that Cruz could actually lose this thing? Oh, well, Alex and Andrea, that's what we're really watching in Texas is it's not Beto as much as who comes in on Beto's coattails. It's entirely possible that several state Senate seats may flip to the Democrats, that some Texas House seats may flip because of the large turnout for Beto O'Rourke. Beto is turning out voters who may elect a Democrat to Congress in Houston, who may elect another one in Dallas, and who may uh, change a few of the seats in the Texas legislature where Democrats don't even have enough seats to block legislation or having to say so at all. They may regain uh, some equal footing in Austin because of Beto O'Rourke. Speaking of coattails, though, you also have a Governor Greg Abbott's campaign on the Republican side with um, not a super competitive race, but millions and millions of dollars to help out down ballot. Well, hey, Bud, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I have to go. Thank you. Bud Kennedy is a man in demand these days, uh, Andrea, as you and I know very well. 
Uh, I, I'm just so torn between this race because, as we discussed, it is very compelling for for many reasons. Beto's candidacy, the way he's running his campaign, Ted Cruz is in the middle of this, and of course, the whole control of the Senate majority could, in theory, come down to Texas. At the same time, boy, people have written an awful lot about Texas Senate race when there are you know a, close to a dozen competitive and interesting Senate races on their own. How do you where do you come down on this, Andrew? I know you're a Texas reporter, so it might be a little trickier for you. Right. I feel like this is a lull for this race. This is maybe the least we've heard about the Texas Senate race all year. I, I imagine that that's going to pick up again in the final weeks. So before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about something pretty cool going on in one of our McClatchy newsrooms. Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. Okay, uh, for our next segment, we want to welcome on Adam Walner. Longtime friend of the show, heading up the Influencer Series uh, for McClatchy. Walner, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Alex, thanks so much for having me back on. And we also have Marlon Hill, who is an attorney, a past head of the Caribbean Bar Association of Florida, and just as importantly, a member of our Florida Influencer Series, which is to say he's a real mover and shaker down in the Sunshine State. Marlon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. A little bit more shaking than moving. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Marlon, uh, we wanted to touch base with you on uh, a survey that we actually conducted a, a few weeks ago. We recently asked you guys about, and that was Amendment 4, uh, a constitutional amendment that's going to be on the ballot in Florida this November. And what it would do, uh, if, if it's approved, is basically restore voting rights to convicted felons in, in Florida. And right now, there, there's about one and a half million of those felons that aren't able to, to vote due to that conviction on their record. Marlon, I guess, you know, what, what do you make of this amendment? Is this something that you think is, is a good idea for Florida? It is more than a good idea. It's a transformational moment in history. Here in Florida, we're the third largest state in the union. We have 13 million registered voters, 4.8 million registered Democrats, 4.6 million registered um, Republicans, 3.5 million registered independents. And when you look at that number, 1.3 million Floridians can't have a say in who, who represents them, right? We have a very large multicultural state. You know, here in Florida, we like to say we, um, we have about five states in one. You know, the Panhandle is much different than the Southwest Florida. South Florida, where, my, where I am in Miami, is a little bit different than, let's say, the I-4 corridor in Orlando. So we have 1.3 million residents who, you know, got into some trouble years back, paid their debt to society. And they're trying to get back, you know, make a contribution. Many of them are making a contribution back to society, but they don't they don't have any representation. And this is just not good for the state of Florida. And, and well, Marlon, uh, your fellow Florida influencers were, were on the same page as you with this one. Ninety five percent of those that, that responded to this survey said that they supported Amendment 4. And in Florida, you know, this is just one of four states where convicted felons do not regain the right to vote after. And this is after serving all of their prison, parole and probation time. Could you just give us a little bit of background as to why Florida is a little bit stricter on this than most other states? Well, you know, Florida is one of four states that still does this, right? Um, so we need to kind of get back onto the right side of history. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the intent. I just know that it's wrong. And I think that the 95% of people that responded to that poll are saying the same thing, right? So this is, it can't be just 95% of Democrats saying this, right? It, it really is a, a bipartisan 
different demographics, older, younger, whether you are an immigrant or you're born in Florida, Floridians are saying, listen, this just makes sense. Right. And, and, and we should note, too, that um, this 95 percent that we're referring to is just among our group of 50 Florida influencers. So not exactly a, a scientific poll by any means. But there was a, a poll that came out from the University of North Florida a few weeks ago of the, the general population in the state that found that 71 percent of all voters do support Amendment 4. And uh, if that's the way it actually goes on Election Day, that would be enough to clear that 60 percent threshold that, that, that you mentioned. I'm not seeing much opposition out there. I'm not seeing much organized opposition. I'm really seeing a coalition of of supporters, bipartisan, um, across the board, um, in the different communities, across the board, in the different parts of the state. Um, If this amendment out of the 13 does not pass, it's really going to say a lot about where the state feels that it is right now or where it wants to go. Do you have a sense of which party thinks that they will benefit from people turning out for this ballot amendment? Something we've talked about on this show a lot, and this is sort of one of those uniquely apolitical issues, but um, are there statewide candidates who are talking about this issue and thinking that it might help draw out their party to vote this November? You know, um, that, that's, that's left to be said. I really believe that, you know, they're, they're Democrats, independents, Republicans, who are convicted felons or family members of, uh, of convicted felons or friends of convicted felons of every shape or size that's impacted by the historical transformational nature of this amendment. So, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ascribe the passing of this amendment and giving 1.3 million um, Floridians back their right to vote to impact one particular party. There's not a monopoly on democracy, um, in my opinion. Um, and I do believe that if one party or the other were to give up the right to say that they, they can't make a case for the vision that they have for Florida or America to these voters, then why are you involved in politics? Why are you involved in a democracy, right? Um, I do not believe that many of these voters are simply going to follow the lead of, of one particular party just because, you know, that's the case. I really don't believe that's, I do see lots of different people who are impacted by this and and who's who knows what their party affiliation is yeah and and just to follow up on another point from andrew's question there is this an issue that you see a lot of candidates in florida talking about on the campaign trail obviously it's one that's very specific to the state of florida uh we don't necessarily hear about it too much nationally but do you see this as something that that candidates are really trying to, to campaign on uh this fall i do hear it more um, from from the from the left side of the politics, right? You know, let's be honest about it. But I think it's a missed opportunity from the right side of politics that this issue is not being taken on. I, I, I do believe that there's a an unfortunate misperception that these 1.3 million um, voters who, whose rights are going to be restored are just going to vote for one party. And, and and hopefully we will hear more from the gubernatorial nominees, you know, Ron DeSantis and, and Andrew Gillum, when they do have their debates um, in the next 28 days before elections on November the 6th. Right. And yeah, the Democrat in that race, Andrew Gillum, uh, does publicly support this measure, while uh, the Republican Ron DeSantis actually has not uh, stated his position publicly on this yet. Marlon, are you at all surprised that there isn't more organized opposition to this? I mean, the, the perception uh, certainly from Washington, is that this amendment is going to pass. And even though it has, as you mentioned, that 60% threshold, it's hard to get 60% support for anything right now in, in politics. And this seems like, certainly seems like the kind of issue that could be very polarizing. Why do you think that hasn't materialized? 
Because I think that folks know that it's just the wrong thing to do. You know, this, this on its face, common sense values of of um, treating our fellow citizens in a in a dignified way to come out against this would just be bad politics. I guess my question then is, what, why is it taking it so long? <laughs> you know, this is it's the it's the year 2018. Um, this this has been around much longer than that. Uh, why 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 has it taken it so long to to try to bring this to ballot? There are many things in our democracy that that that, are, that take generations, right? This is the this is the beauty of America, right? Um, everything does not happen like instant oatmeal, right? You have to <laughs> sometimes you have to make it with the the cut grain, and you have to <laughs> you have to work it out. Um, and sometimes it, you know history takes a long time to bend towards justice, and this is one of those things that it's taken a a little bit longer for the curve to make its um, turn. You know, I, I suspect Marlon we might be hearing a little bit more about the effects of this amendment if it does pass in the 2020 presidential election. Call me a cynic, but I think uh, that it's going to, uh, to have some influence on, on how people perceive the, the always important battle in Florida. Well, you know, listen, you know, Florida knows how to have um, very tight elections. The last two election cycles, um, Governor Scott won by 1%. Um, President Barack Obama won his two elections in 2008 and 2012 by 1%. And I, I do predict that the turnout compared to 2014 is going to be way much more in 2018 for various reasons, especially um, due to the tsunami effect of Amendment 4, uh, because it's such an important moment, not just for Florida, but for an example to our um, American democracy. Uh, well, Marlon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And please remember to register to vote wherever you are in America. Um, this is your time to let your voice be heard. This has got to be the one truly political issue that transcends partisan ideology. And at this point in the cycle, I think uh, the world is ready to talk about a political issue that doesn't fall along partisan lines. Yeah, especially in a state as divided as Florida. I mean, Marlin laid it out for us. Uh, you know, basically every every competitive election there comes down to one or two points. So to see something like this that not only was widely supported among our influencer panel, but among the general public as well, something that could get 60, 70 percent of the vote statewide uh, seems pretty significant. I mean, Dwayne Wade wouldn't get 70 percent of the vote in, <laughs> in, in Florida, you know. So this, this I don't is, know. He, he might. He might. Yeah, maybe, maybe in Miami. Okay, well, if you hear that TikTok sound, Andrea and Adam, it's because it's time for the lightning round, where you have 30 seconds to tell me, tell us, tell the listeners something new and interesting about politics. Walner, you are, of course, our honored guest, so you'll go first. Well, speaking of the 2020 elections, those are going to get underway basically the day after the 2018 election, and in some ways, it are they already are. Um, Iowa, the state that kicks off the presidential nominating process, actually hasn't seen a lot of big names visit there uh, so far. I think for fear of uh, getting attacks from from President Trump and maybe uh, some unwanted media attention this early in the cycle, but that's already starting to change. Cory Booker visited over the weekend. Uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be there in a couple weeks, and uh, reportedly Kamala Harris is preparing to make a trip there right before the midterms. So I was going to see plenty of Democrats who want to run for president uh, in the coming weeks and months visiting their fine state. You know, you, you blew the 30 seconds there, but, <laughs> but it's pretty good. Darn it. It's a, it's, it, look, look, it's a pretty good one. I think we're going to allow it. I'll, I'll take the next one. Adam, do you want you want to time me? Get I'm the, on it. Get that timer up. I got something I got to get off my chest. <laughs> Doing a little stretching here beforehand. 
Okay, there is just this idea that's taken uh, root on the right that all the protesters for the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and confirmation fight were all paid protesters. Look, it's a, a silly thing. It's also something we saw Democrats say about the Tea Party. It wasn't any more true then than it is now. You only have to look at the, the fact that there were millions of people who marched in the Women's March. There were all dozens of resistance groups that have cropped up organically since Trump's election. Even the money that you see uh, flowing into the coffers of these Democratic candidates. Look, there are angry liberals out there, folks. It really is true. And of course there are. It's a polarized country. It really doesn't stretch credulity at all that there would be angry protesters at something as viscerally emotional as a, the confirmation fight over Brett Kavanaugh. I just need to get that off my chest. And we're even going to let you go over your 30 seconds. Now, you cut me some slack. I'll cut you some slack. You know, it's a, it's a season of giving. There's a lot to talk about. It's not the season of giving. That's next month and, <laughs> and Thanksgiving. But that doesn't mean we can't, can't do it early, folks. Andrea, you're up. The other aspect of our 2018 coverage here at McClatchy is our ground game series. Uh, and Alex was out in Pennsylvania following around a Democrat, Matt Cartwright, um, trying to see if Democrats can win back Trump voters. It sounds like from your report in Pennsylvania, uh, it, this effort is, is going um, rocky at best. Well, you know, Andrea... Seriously, we can we can just spend like thirty minutes talking about you know my stories if we want. I'm all in favor of that. But yeah, it, it's it's you have problems with both candidates. You know this Trump candidate, this Republican has an MBA from Columbia, and he's talking to me about how a trade war with China really wouldn't be so bad. At the same time, he's talking about indexing the Social Security retirement age to life expectancy, which means you're basically raising the re Social Security retirement age every year, which is not an especially popular proposal anywhere in the country. Meanwhile, the Democrat just recently picked up hunting and said he took an online safety course about hunting while riding the Acela. Probably not the sort of thing you want to admit to your district, but I guess these points for honesty, Walner. Points for honesty. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be honest about that sort of thing. I wonder, like th that that uh, Venn diagram of people who take hunting classes and people who ride the Acela. He might be the only one in the middle of that. He might. It might be a Venn diagram of one person yeah. uh, there. This is a. One of our two groups of voters that you and Katie have been looking for is the, the Trump voters who could vote for Democrats and the Clinton voters who could vote for Republicans. Do they know that they're targeted? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's, a little, it's a little unclear to me. Anyway, Warner, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, as always. Andrea, apologize for the stormy weather in San Antonio. Hopefully uh, things get better the, during the rest of your trip down in the Lone Star State. I will see you next week. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. week.